Welcome back to the Film 89 Podcast. This is episode 62, an episode that straddles both 2020 and 2021 like some giant bronze colossus. And speaking of which, your host with all the most is here again. It's Mr. Neil Gaskin. Merry New Year, my friends and fellow podcasts. It's good to be back. That is, if this episode does go out in 2021, it could well go out just at the tail end of 2020. Who knows? So, Neil, as we leave 2020 and welcome in a new year, how would you sum up how things have been for you in the hellish year that's been 2020? Oh, God. (laughs) That's a tough one. I think we've all been in the same boat, haven't we, really? It's not been the greatest of years, let's be honest. But uh, stuck in lockdown, we managed to go to the cinema twice this year, Sky. We both went separately to watch Sonic the Hedgehog. It wasn't a date. (laughs) And then we actually did it on a little bit of a mandate to watch Tenet. So it's not been the greatest cinema experiences for us this year, is it? Well, I think back, Neil, to one of the closing comments you made on, on, on one of our episodes at the tail end of last year, where you promised big things from us from for, for 2020, and, and you meant it. Yeah, I did, in fairness. And like you say, we, you know, we had so many sort of films lined up. We had a yeah. new Bond. We had the Black Widow prequel. There's so many films. Well, the film we're talking about tonight. Yeah, we had some awesome guests lined up. Things which, because of certain films being cancelled then. Vin Diesel was coming on for the new Fast and Furious film, wasn't he? <laughs> we were going to speak, we, we speak to uh, Dan Aykroyd about the new Ghostbusters spin-off. I think it was, it was Piers Brosnan, wasn't it? it was gonna, we couldn't get Craig, but Brosnan was going to come on and talk about the, the latest Bond. <laughs> and all, all friends of the show. Yeah, friends <laughs> and, of the uh, show. Oh, this just gone south now because of this damn COVID virus. I know. So unfortunately, and it's made us reevaluate. Like a lot of people have reevaluated and said, Do you know what? I don't need to go into an office. Hmm. I don't need to travel 15, 20 miles a day every day commuting back and forth to work. I can work from home. We've had a similar thing where we've gone, look, we're going to stop the celebrities coming on. We've phoned Vin Diesel up. Yeah. We've phoned Piers Brosnan up. We've said, look, we don't need you. We can talk about these films without you turning up. So, you know, there's, there's a silver lining to all this, really, because yeah, we've yeah. saved a fortune in limousine you know, oh, fees. And expenses, and oh, they want all their meals paid for. we got our new limo driver, haven't we, Argyle? Argyle, yeah. He's only been in the job a couple of days. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Hasn't got a you know, he just doesn't even know what a minibar is. He picked up Dame Judy Gench for us. Yeah. He had her sitting in the front seat. I know. You know, and there's only so much Stevie Wonder she can listen to. Exactly. You know, exactly. so uh, it's still Christmas, so I can still make Diad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, you can 
So tonight's point of discussion is our spoiler-filled review of director Patty Jenkins' delayed sequel to her smash hit 2017 entry into Warner's DCEU, a film that grossed a whopping $822 million worldwide. And that sequel is, of course, Wonder Woman 1984. Now, understandably for many of you, it may be difficult to actually get to see Wonder Woman 84 at the moment, given the fact that many regions uh, are at least in some degree of lockdown. We certainly are here now, um, I think as of, uh, well, about a week ago. So yeah, yeah. 20th, we went to full lockdown, didn't we? Yeah, you know, we are aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of you will be listening to this episode long after it, it's aired. But we will warn you now that we are going to go in full-on spoiler fill because it's not going to be possible to have any sort of reasoned, objective discussion about this film without going into details as to the plot. Yeah, I think I think that's something with this. I mean, with this film especially, like you say, to do a spoiler-free review of this film, you've pretty much seen a spoiler-free review in the trailer, really, haven't you? Yeah. So, Neil, remind me, when was, in this crazy year, uh, Wonder Woman 84 initially supposed to be released? It's been rescheduled that many times, hasn't it? I think, originally, this is one of the films that was delayed pre-COVID. There was some sort of delay with it pre-COVID, and I think it was supposed to come out late March, early April of this year. I think it was, yeah, yeah. And then it's been put off. Wasn't it then pushed to June? Yeah, then it was pushed back again. Uh, there was rumours it was going to be released in August, and I think it was either September or October. They said, right, definitely no, this film is coming out in the cinema. The director, Patty Jenkins, said this is not going to a streaming site. I've spoken to Warner Brothers. I can I can say categorically this film needs to be seen in the cinema, and it will be seen in the cinema. You will experience this film on the big screen, and then they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I should say, in the States... Over yeah, here we got, States, a, yeah. we, we got a very sort of small window to go and see the film before everyone went back into lockdown. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, you know, that's obviously the situation we had over here. It was released on the 16th of December. And then, you know, for us, obviously, we had a couple of days and before the, well, we didn't even know the lockdown was coming on the 16th, did we? It, it, it was well, kind of it was dropped on us last minute. Six o'clock at night, I think I found out that at 12 o'clock, you know, at midnight, we were going back into tier four. Yeah. Lockdown. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love that meme we had on a Facebook page the other day with uh, Kyle Reese. Yeah. What tier is it? Yeah. Because <laughs> so I think that's how we all fear at the moment. You know, we, none of us know what's going on. Yeah. But I think we had about, I think it was literally about six or seven hours notice. Yeah. Which to us is a pain in the ass um, when we're trying to go to the cinema and watch films and review them. But, you know, if you're in a business or a restaurant, and especially before the Christmas uh, period's about to kick off, and you're ordering in loads of extra food and loads of extra drink for everyone, only to find out the establishment is now going to be closed until whenever the Welsh government decides again. Well, you know, not going too much back into things, you know, about the COVID situation. Obviously, we did an entire episode on that when this uh, thing hit what we thought was the initial... What we thought was going to be the peak, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the peak, as we thought it was. But, oh, little did we know. But yeah, going back to the, the first Wonder Woman film. Now, I, I reviewed it for Film 89 on the website. I gave it an 8 out of 10. And for me, this film still holds up. It's still certainly one of the better, if not the best, DCEU film that we've had. What were your thoughts on the first film? Yeah, I mean, the current sort of DCEU, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if you're looking sort of uh, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Justice mm-hmm. League, Aquaman, then you've got to put Wonder Woman at the top of the pile there, haven't you? I'd say the best DC films, you could go back to the original Christopher Reeve Superman, you could go back to the Nolan trilogies. And say, but if you look at the current iteration, as in when Warner Brothers have said, "Look, we're going to do our own version of the MCU," 
Wonder Woman has got to sit top of the pile there. Yeah. And it's one of those films where it's quite a pleasant surprise, to be honest. You know, with Gal Gadot being sort of cast for the role as well, she certainly looks the part, but mm-hmm. I hadn't seen her in anything to suggest that she could really carry a film on her shoulders. I mean, she's a very beautiful woman. There's no denying that. She mm-hmm. looked, you know, she did a little bit in Fast and Furious films, but as a leading character, I wasn't sure she could pull it off. But, you know, in fairness... And again with Chris Pine, you know he's never not my, hashtag not my Kirk. You know mm-hmm. the film sort of came together, and I was you know pl- it was nice to have a pleasant surprise, especially when a DC film's concerned. And like you say, eight out of ten might be a little bit over generous, perhaps a sort of seven, seven and a half. But if I wouldn't argue with an eight, and what I would say as well is. It was one of those films where you sort of went into it, expected it to be a complete another train crash of a movie. That review was initially written uh, long before it was published. And for whatever reason, I think it was possibly because the site wasn't actually even up and running then. Uh, that would have been why. Yeah, that, that would have been why. It was It was 2017, I think. When did we start? Uh, July, the end of July, beginning of August 2017, the website started. I'd written a review of it. I think I gave it 7 out of 10. And then what I did was I actually got the Blu-ray and did a review of the Blu-ray for the web site i kind of rounded my score up because little problems i had with initially on seeing it in the cinema in particular that sort of overblown cgi baddie ending that we've seen in any other number of superhero films it didn't bother me as much and that was the main weak point i'd picked up with the film and i saw a lot more of the positive things in the film so i i I rounded my score up i think looking back with hindsight a seven out of ten would have probably been more fair a score going into this second film obviously you'll know neil how enthusiastic i was after seeing both the initial posters and then the first lot of trailers and then by the second round of trailers i was just absolutely gagging to see this film smack bang in the middle of a pandemic where we're being told we can't go to the cinema where you know one of my biggest passions has been taken away from me this film was the one film given the tone and you know how fun it looked this is just what we needed for 2020 and then having endless delays it became one of those things where no i need this film you know i i just need this as, as a tonic to how shit a year this has been yeah and it was like i said they were, they were almost sort of giving it to us and taking away one it was like we were constantly sort of updating the site as well like, you know that oh, it's got a new release date now it's coming out this month and you know and then it'd be like well okay it's not coming out this month but it's coming out in six weeks after that it's just being pushed back a little bit and I think this and um, the latest Bond, No Time to Die, have both been the same with me, where they've they've almost sort of pushed my expectations of, okay, I can't see it in your March, but I can see it in July. Yeah. Okay, but I can't see it in July, but September's around the corner, you know, before I know it. And the one thing I would say, I mean, I've been sort of stuck at home since all this kicked off. I've been working from home. The, the period, the Christmas period, that we're all stuck in now, and no one knows what day of the week it is. I've had that since March. Mm. You know, the other, the flip side to that is I've always been thinking, well, hang on, oh, it's Friday already, it's another week over, you know, and it was sort of like the months were flying by, like my son's birthday was in August, which at the time seemed like a mile away, and before I know it, I was like, Christ, I've got a game something, you know, it's, it's his mm. birthday in two weeks, because yeah. the years, as, as, as sort of closeted and as sort of hermit-like as I've been this year, I have found the time has been flying by, so when they were sort of giving us sort of repeat sort of well, it's not coming out this month, but it's coming out that next month. I think, well, it'll be gone in five minutes. Mm. I'll be able to see it. And I think we've all lived on sort of a bit of a false hope, haven't we, that, you know, the, the figures are drop. And, it, you know, it sounds incredibly selfish when talking about it because, you know, people you know people are suffering because of it and people are oh, losing God, yeah. people because of it. But yeah. it's been that sort of thing of, you know, a couple of months' time, it'll fly by and I'll get to be back in the cinema and I'll get to see this film. Didn't have any expectations of it being the greatest film in the world, to be honest. But like you say, it just looked like a fun action-type superhero film that you could sort of... I'm not going to say turn your brain off, but you could just sort of sit back and enjoy. 
Yeah, it, it does come to something with me at the moment where I, I'd almost take anything just to have a theatrical experience. You know, I just want something. Even if we had to watch Tenant again? No, I just want something. <laughs> I want something that's going <laughs> to entertain me and not infuriate me like Tenet did. And I thought that this would be that film. It didn't infuriate me, but as we'll come to later, uh, it's not the film that the first one was. And I think for no. anyone who's looked at the reviews, who's watched anything about this film on YouTube from the general consensus at the moment. I think it's safe to say, Neil, is it, that this film has had a bit of a pan in. It does seem, it does seem the, the sort of all the goodwill of the first film garnished has completely gone out the window with this film. It has, it has. And you'd think the people who've been deprived of seeing the film in the cinema, you know, for a lot of people, seeing a film at home on as it is available in America on HBO Max. That would be ideal for a lot of people who don't actually like the theatrical experience, who don't like the thing of people you know, on their mobile phones, people just being, you know, ruffling Doritos bags and stuff like that and just being a general pain. You'd think that something like this would be it'd be ideal for them. And if you go the other way as well, I mean you've got people who've just got, you know, young families and you know yeah. stuff like that or haven't got a sort of regular supply of babysitters for perhaps older kids as well. You know, they just physically can't go out and go visit the cinema so you'd think you know with this you know they say being on hbo max it's not something you're gonna sort of whack out a massive amount of money on like with mulan where you had to pay i think it was like 30 dollars on top of the subscription fee yeah this is just part of you know you could basically subscribe for a month and cancel the subscription if you really want it yeah. if you just wanted to see this film yeah now i know a lot of people put stock in the viewpoint of rotten tomatoes as I've explained before, as I think I did on our Back to the Future episode with Adam Rakoff and Richie, I don't. I think you know, as a gauge for general consensus, I think the system employed by Rotten Tomatoes is flawed. I always yeah. lean towards IMDb. And looking at the user score on IMDb for the original Wonder Woman from 2017, that comes in with a score of 7.4 out of 10. And a meta score, which is the critics' uh, kind of combined score, of 76%. So quite close here between the critics and the users. Yeah, it's both fair. Yeah. Looking at the sequel at the moment as it stands, it gets a user score of 5.6 out of 10. And again, very close to the user score is the meta score of 59% from the critics. So considerably lower than the original film. Shall we start at the beginning, Neil? And that opening flashback scene in Themyscira of a young Diana competing in what looks to be some sort of overly complicated Olympic Games. She looks to be about 10, maybe 12 at the most against... It was definitely referencing the Olympics because when yeah. they were scoring their little uh, point scoring they were doing as yeah. they were riding along, the colours were the colours of the Olympic, Olympic rings, rings, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. So she's competing against grown women. I couldn't work out why we had about 10 women who were all in their sort of at least mid-20s yeah. against a child of about nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> she might have had some advantage, you know, yeah. being the daughter of Zeus, I don't know. I'd say other than the overcomplicated sort of mousetrap nature of the thing, the obstacles they had to overcome... I thought it was quite well shot, that the effects kind of held up. It didn't look too ropey at all. And uh, bearing in mind, it's, it's a completely, you know, fabricated environment. But then, you know, it does go on for quite a bit. Uh, Diana then finds a shortcut after she gets knocked off her horse. I didn't see that coming, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, unbelievably, this young girl wins against these grown women, only to be stopped at the end for cheating. Coming out of it, the question I've got to ask, having seen the film to its conclusion, what is the lesson that she learned here that later becomes relevant and crops back up as kind of like a recurring theme in the film? Is there anything? Did I miss it? I think it was a very sort of ham-fisted attempt that just because something can be achieved by an easy mean, yeah. 
you know, just because you can have something, i.e. the victory, or i.e. Steve the back. Yeah. Yeah, the wish. You know, it's not always the right thing. And I, yeah, I can kind of see what they were doing there, mm. but it just seemed a bit... Oh, I don't know. It's just a little bit rammed home a little bit in the wrong the wrong direction for my liking, really. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you know, we could give a detailed plot synopsis, but assuming that this episode is going to be listened to by people who have seen the film, given the fact that we're going to be not holding back on spoilers. Well, you know, in, in fairness, like you say, if you'd watch any of the trailers, you've got the you've got the plots and obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've yeah. got Maxwell Lord. Uh, obviously, we're fast forwarded now, thousands of years to 1984. Now, something that wasn't apparent either in the trailers, but it should have been, but it wasn't. And in, even as I was watching the film, but afterwards, as I was digesting all of this, go back to is it Batman versus Superman, where Diana Prince tells Bruce Wayne the fact that she's kind of. You know, she's left our civilization about a hundred years ago. Well, I, I, I can't remember if it's BVS for the kids. Yeah. Or Justice League, but she has this conversation where she basically says, I've walked away from mankind. That's right, yeah. A hundred years ago. Which would have been, yeah, which would have tied in because, yeah. Uh, Ties in. I can sort of see the end of World War One. She's lost Steve Trevor. She's realized, you know, the sort of futility of... You know, if man is always going to go to battle, man is always going to go to war, you know, and she's sort of given up on it. So I think we're safe to assume there, Neil, that given what she said there to Bruce Wayne, that she's kind of laid low for the best part of a century, kind of lived her life, you know, obviously ageless. She would have had to have gone from place to place, possibly in order to hide the fact she's not aging, maybe take on a false identity. (laughs) But no, we find out that she's still called Diana Prince. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as we then see very still quickly still working on antiquities of Smithsonian which yeah. she was definitely doing in Batman v Superman she was yeah. definitely doing Injustice these both of these films were set at the relevant time so mm. if you know Batman v Superman is what 2016 or thereabouts it I was, think Justice yeah. League is Justice League's 2018 she was still working on the Smithsonian there mm-hmm. so she's been working in the same place yeah. since at least 1984 at least yeah to 2018 and she hasn't aged a day no one in there. I mean, you know, in 1984, I was a young uh, sort of intern in the Smithsonian, and I saw this beautiful woman, tall, attractive, uh-huh. gorgeous, absolutely fantastic. I was, I fell in love with her. Then 30 odd years later, when I was married and I had kids and I possibly had grandkids, hmm. I was still looking at this woman thinking, strangely, my weird office crush has an age today. Yeah. Now, there's <laughs> yeah. a bigger problem crops up here, Neil. We have to fast forward to the end of the film, but in order to pick up this little problem I've got with the plot, we've got to do it. <laughs> Let's fast forward to the end of the film where we've had world-changing chaos. We've had absolute carnage, yeah? yeah? This has been like a global event, unlike anything that the DCEU has ever seen before. It happened in 1984. So when we fast forward then to the events of Batman vs. Superman onwards and Wonder Woman crops back up, at no point does anyone say... Oh yeah, that's Wonder Woman, the uh, woman that was pivotal in her involvement in the big massive sort of wish event of 1984, which the entire world remembers because the entire world was nearly destroyed. No, I I did think of that. We're we're jumping way ahead now, but when she does actually do that, Hmm. her face isn't shown on the TV screens. Just her voice then, is it? Just her voice and it's the orange glow of the lasso, so I'll give you that one. But it doesn't take away from the fact, my thing of this film... It's Wonder Woman, it's 1984, obviously it's a prequel, the title gives it away, was something is going to happen in 1984 
that is going to bring Diana back to be Wonder Woman again, to like, if you like, expose herself as Wonder Woman again, yeah. that it's going to happen in a sort of almost covert fashion that no one else really picks up on Wonder Woman. Now we say we go from the opening sort of Olympic Games thing to 1984 shopping mall, heist in the shopping mall. Now, I will be completely honest, as much as I'm being critical of the film, this part of the film, I was thoroughly enjoying. When she's swinging around Washington, D.C., and she's saving brides from getting knocked off bridges, and she's, you know, saving young children in the shopping mall, reminded me so much of Christopher Reeve's sort of Richard Donner Superman. Yeah. I was fully on board at this part. I was thinking, ah, right, I see what they're doing here. But there was still a nagging doubt in my head that although she's telling children to shush and winking at them, as in don't tell them my secret. Yeah. That there's probably a thousand other witnesses in this shopping mall <laughs> that would say, Do you remember that Amazonian <laughs> goddess swinging round on a yellow rope? Yeah. <laughs> on a, a glowing yellow rope. I, admit, admittedly, we weren't in the days of mobile phones. You know, not everyone was going to capture it on camera, but I'm pretty sure they had CCTV back in 1984. Which we also see her using her headband boomerang thing to destroy the CCTV cameras probably a couple of minutes after she's, you know, started all of this. Yeah, but I think there was more than one camera in that whole shopping mall, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I know. As much as you say, right, I, I did enjoy the little montage of her going around DC saving people. I did like that, and it did feel very much Richard Donner. But even that early on in the film, I was thinking, given the tone of it, this is not going to come across as very complimentary, but I did think Superman 3, and I, yes. don't, I don't mean... I yeah, don't mean the camp, good bit of Superman 3 with the evil no. Superman, which we love. I mean the Superman 3, the sort of campy, Richard Lester humour, is smacked of that. And what I will say, Neil, is and you've got a good way of, if I like something and I'm liking it for the wrong reasons, you've got a good way of deconstructing that. Let me do that for you, my friend, with the shopping mall yeah. scene. Is the shopping mall scene in Wonder Woman 84 where you've got this incredibly powerful goddess taking on hoodlums, is it in any way as good as the equivalent scene from Commando? Oh, nowhere near. Absolutely nowhere near. Right. In, in, fact, in fact, when I was watching it with my son, it was always a proud moment. My son said, is that the, is that the mall from Commando? As, right. soon as, as soon as he opened up there. So, no. Yeah. But, no, I mean, it's campy. It's sort of like kitsch. It's, but I thought, well, this is what they're going for now. And what I was afraid of, there was going to be like a sort of 100 million sort of like references to the 80s in this film. And when yeah. I saw the opening scene with the, with the shopping mall, I thought, all right, we're going on a Stranger Things route now, are we? But it sort of embraced it a little bit for me. And that's why I say I almost felt a little bit of comfort in the fact that they were making it a bit sort of Donner-esque, if you like, if that's a word. Yeah. So yeah, not long after that, we meet Barbara Minerva, who is one of Diana Prince's work colleagues, who she's... In fact, wasn't she just starting there? Isn't that why she's carrying a load of paperwork and stuff? I think it was supposed to be... Well, it was her first day, but somehow she knew people who were in there. Yeah, that's right. Because when she came there, the person who'd hired her didn't remember her for some reason. Yeah. The, yeah, the lady who came in was sort of like... She introduced us, she said, a pleasure to meet you. And she said, oh, we met last week in the interview, you gave me the job. So Kristen Wiig, who plays Barbara, Barbara's this kind of awkward company employee... Uh, she's quite goofy. She's very clumsy. But again, that that fitted into the sort of like classic sort of eighties aesthetic for me. The sort of pretty and pink sort of uh, vibe, if you like. You know, she's the girl with the messy hair and the big rim glasses on. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, who's dressed in baggy clothes. But you know, the the minute she takes the glasses off and sweeps her, lets her hair down, she'll be beautiful. I I was straight away thinking, oh, I see what they're doing here now. They're going for. It's not just going to be set in the 80s. Like I say, with what they do with Stranger Things, which I absolutely adored in the first season. 
And then by sort of episode two or three of the second season, I was like, I don't really need to hear another Tears for Fears song. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. you know, you know that, that was the thing I was afraid of when the first trailer came out for Wonder Woman 84 was they put the Blue Monday track on there, the New Order Blue Monday mm-hmm. track. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool, but it sounded cool in the Atomic Blonde trailer. Hmm. It sounded cool in numerous other trailers that have been sent in, you know, in the eighties. You know, are we just going to go down, down this route now of uh, what was the one before Dark Phoenix? Like, oh, was it X Men Apocalypse? Wasn't it? Yeah. Where we're just going to go to a mall and we're going to talk about Tiffany or something. I was thinking, right, the, the film's not really doing that. It's setting itself in the eighties as it, as if it's in the eighties. It's not. It's not paying homage, if you like. And no. I, at that point, I was I was prepared to give the film a bit of a break. And also, Neil, it's giving us something that we've never seen. Well, I don't think we've ever seen this in a superhero film before, where you've got this sort of awkward, sort of goofy company employee who who eventually becomes awesome and powerful. And that's nothing we've ever seen before, apart from Selina Kyle in Batman Returns, the Riddler in Poison Ivy in the Joel Schumacher Batman films, and Jamie Foxx's Electro in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And if I could just chuck in Iron Man 3 as well, eh? Oh, Aldrich <laughs> Killian. Aldrich Killian, who was literally the ultimate sort of... <laughs> Oh. Hey, I just want to be your friend. Oh, <laughs> oh, I, dropped, I dropped some papers on. I dropped some papers on the floor because I'm really clumsy. Oh. But you know, if you if you could just give me five minutes of your time, me and you could be best buddies. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a cliche, wasn't it? The ham-fistedness <laughs> starts early on, doesn't it? Yeah, again, you know. Again, I was like, all right, okay, I see where we're going with this. Which then very quickly a, introduces us following the, 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 the bumbled sort of heist by literally the worst robbers I've ever seen. So then it quickly sets up the plot of, and we see on some TVs in a, in a TV store, Macho Lord is this big oil tycoon. Now, Neil, you can fake a lot of things in this world, yeah? How do you fake being a multi-billionaire oil tycoon? How do you actually fake that? Because you can present yourself as whatever you want to be, and if you haven't got the funds to back it up, or you haven't got the actual ownership of oil fields and stuff like oil, that, oil, oil, I would think would be a sort of essential part of being an oil tycoon. I don't work for any of the OPEC companies. You know, I've never dealt in in the oil industry, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure from a, just the the, the 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 sort of minor outsider knowledge I've got of the industry, you can't really fake being extremely successful in that business if you own nothing. Yeah. I was going to say, if you came to me right now and you were like, Neil, I need you to take your life savings, yeah. put it into my business, I'm going to make you 10 times that. I'd be like, oh, I'm interested. You know, hmm. What are you doing, Sky? Um, I'm producing oil. Okay. Can you show me some of that oil? No. Sure, yeah, show me your portfolio. Show me something. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, I've I got to be honest. Again, I thought it was kind of a lazy sort of way of doing it. From watching the the trailers, I had in my mind that he was perhaps almost sort of a celebrity businessman, if you like. I suppose we've got it over here with like Alan Sugar and Richard Branson and people mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the T word. You know, conversely, prior to 2016, America had a love affair with Donald Trump for the same reason, didn't mm-hmm. they? You know, uh, where he was this sort of like almost celebrity businessman. People every now and then would sort of mention the fact that, but if we look at it from a British point of view. We watch The Apprentice now, which is the sort of British equivalent of the American show for our American listeners. 
instead of having Donald Trump or leader Arnold Schwarzenegger, we have Sir Alan Sugar. Mm-hmm. Alan Sugar was a sort of flash in the pan sort of businessman in the mid '80s selling crappy computers. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's done all right since with stocks and shares, but none of it's been on his own sort of business acumen as such, is it? Mm-hmm. It's not as if if I mentioned Amstrad now, some of the sort of older listeners in the UK will remember Amstrad. Yeah, he's he's hardly Apple, is he? You know? But I was going to say, but he's no Steve Jobs, is he? Gosh, but no. again, the, the TV show sells him as if he was Steve Jobs. Yeah. And that's what I thought was going to be the case with Maxwell Lord. I thought Maxwell Lord was going to be almost a sort of celebrity businessman, if you like. But it, mm. it turned out that he was selling some sort of Kwanzaa pyramid scheme via cheap TV tacky adverts, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> obviously, it's very quickly established then that the FBI, for whatever reason, have given Barbara Minerva all of this uh, stolen stuff in order to identify it. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, that that's her field. And then it turns out that one of the objects that's been put in, in, into her temporary care is this, this wishing stone. Maxwell Lord's plan is to get hold of the wishing stone, as we very quickly find out. And instead of granting himself just one wish, you know, that he could be this big, all-powerful oil tycoon, he instead decides to kind of become the wishing stone. So is his wish to be rich and famous like he's always wanted to be, given the fact that we like to see in a flashback he's come from a very um, sort of, um, you know, abused childhood and a bit of a poor bringing. You know, he's always been the underdog. Does it make that much sense then that his wish is to actually become the wishing stone? Because to me... It seemed a bit of a strange choice to sort of put yourself in a position of becoming yeah. the object that he could give you whatever you wanted. For me, I'd have gone, I wish I could have a million more wishes, or I wish I could have as many wishes I could. Or I might have even gone along the lines of, I wish no one else could use this stone bar me to make wishes. Yeah. That would have been enough. Yeah, uh, you know, it's like it's like doing it's like doing the sensible thing when Thanos did what he wanted to do. His next wish was, well, I'm going to use the stones to destroy the stones. It seemed a bit strange because there was obviously some sort of there've been a sort of years of research, if you like, because when when they sort of rumbled the fact that he he grabbed hold of the stone, they went to his office and you know like there was diagrams there and old maps and you know old photographs and mm. you know books, you know ancient books of you know legend and text and stuff that he'd done the research. He you know he realised what this stone was somehow. Mm-hmm. And again, it just seemed to me like they really missed a trick there because they made Maxwell Lord this you know like I say celebrity entrepreneur if you like when they could have made him a sort of like a geologist mm-hmm. or like a, some sort of expert enough you know when you look at it, it wouldn't be a sort of a, a big stretch for someone who's drilling for oil to have you know researched all these sort of landlines and found out about all these like sort of areas where different stones are kept perhaps you know and stuff like that and stumbled onto it that way it seemed very strange that this sort of flim flam sort of like you know almost sort of snake oil salad if you like mm. also knew that there was this great sort of like you say almost like an infinity stone somewhere that could give him everything he wanted sorry let me just decipher what you're trying to say there you're trying to say then that this all powerful object that gives you godlike powers over reality effectively yeah that, that would yeah. effectively turn you into a god if you used it properly is set up in a matter of minutes with little to no explanation are you making a comparison to maybe the fact that in the MCU we see Marvel in on Kevin Feige in his method of storytelling taking the best part of seven years to set up the same thing. Yeah, pretty much. And like mm. I say, it's just like put like this. Let's put it this way: I'd love to be a millionaire. You know, I'm probably about I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand pound shy of it. You're not far <laughs> off. I'm not far off. You know, if I keep saving, if I knew there was a possibility that out there there was some stone 
mm. that could give me everything I wanted, could give me infinite riches. Yeah. I don't think I'd be wasting my time trying to sell pyramid schemes on like sort of afternoon TV yeah. in between Oprah and Bori Povich. <laughs> it just seems a bit strange. I think we'll come we'll come back to the problems with this part of the plot later. Yeah. As soon as Diana gets wind of what this stone can do, she or, or she's she gets a, a decent inkling as to what it might be. She takes hold of it, and I was going to say there was this strange sort of thing where her and Barbara both got hold of the stone. Hmm. It's never really explained if they made the wish there and then, but obviously they did make a wish there and then. Yeah. Both of them were sat there ridiculing the fact that it was all you know. When you think, especially with Diana, that she'd be the last person to say, "Oh, it's just superstition, or it's just an old myth, or whatever," because she is, you know, if you think, you know, she's the stuff of myth, isn't she? Hmm. So you'd think that she would have known about this and know it was real straight away, but for whatever reason, yeah. Yeah. She had a little wish. She has a little wish and oh, right. Oh god. <laughs> See this this is where this is where things really early on started to fall apart for me. Uh, she goes to this dinner party, um she's made her wish. This guy approaches her who very quickly, to us as well, the viewer, identifies himself himself in a way as being Steve Trevor. Yeah. And then he puts a watch in her hand. Obviously, mimicking the fact that he did the same at the end of the first one with the pocket watch, and says, "You know, I, I wish we had more time." Yeah, I don't think it ling- I don't think it lingered on that pocket watch no. enough before this scene. That what were we like? Fifteen minutes into the film now, mm-hmm. I would say there were at least five lingering shots of that old pocket watch before yeah. this happened. <laughs> at least. So he places a, a Casio digital watch in her hands, and and it gives that line. We can see that it's not Chris Pine. But whatever happens then initially baffled me. I've since obviously worked out the fact that her wish has meant that Steve's soul or whatever it is has been transported into this body of this unwitting guy who lives, I don't know, a couple of blocks away from Diana. But Diana herself opens up a load of questions. Who's that guy? Did he have a family? Did he have a job? You know, (laughs) what happened to his consciousness and personality whilst he was being occupied by Steve Trevor? It seemed a very sort of strange thing because, you know, like I say, they they sort of like showed it as in he was the dude with the dark hair. Yeah. And then once she accepted it, we sort of, for the rest of the film, see this guy as through her eyes, if you like. So we see Steve Trevor, we see Chris Pike. And it, it was like a very sort of like, in case you didn't get that, there was a sort of quantum leap sort of scene as well, wasn't it? When he looked in the mirror and you always, just, I, I thought it would have been great if he'd said, oh boy. Like, oh, when he did yeah, that. yeah. If he just looked at it. Yeah. Just seen the, the different reflection and said, oh boy, that would have been tremendous, but there wasn't enough time for that, obviously. It's what the good folks at Twitter would call problematic, because I don't see why they had to do that. I'm pretty sure she didn't go, I wish the spirit of Steve would envelop a known, a known man who lives around the corner for me. That's not she what she asked I, for, is it? No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. She probably said, I would imagine... I want Steve back. Yeah. You know, I wish Steve was still alive. Because later on, as you see, Neil, in the film, and again, in, in order to pick apart this really big plot hole, we have to fast forward in the film. When we like to see the president and various other people making their wishes, their wishes actually come true, and they come true as per the wish, you know, uh, as the wish was said. Like, I wish I had more nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, I, I wish you'd drop dead, uh, as, the, as the guy says in the restaurant to the woman. Yeah. If you look at everyone that's had their wish granted, literally... As I said, Diana, even though we don't hear her wish verbalised, why does hers have to happen in the way it does? Other than, in a way, to service the plot. Is she strangely vague? Yeah. I don't know I don't know how her service... I don't know how her service... Because this is the thing. When I first saw her, I thought, oh, that's quite clever, actually. The fact that that sort of thing of, you know, be careful what you wish for. You don't always get exactly what you wanted, you know? 
it just seems a really strange choice that when I say when I saw it, I thought, okay, that's weird. Yeah. And then when he did the little quantum leap thing, I thought, well, this is going to pay off at some point. Like he's going to be Maxwell Lord's brother, or he's going to be Barbara's ex-husband, or whatever. You know, there's going to be some relevance for the rest of the world to be seeing a guy who's not Chris Pine. Okay, this this is going to pay off, and the payoff was it didn't pay off. No, because in my notes, Neil, I sum this up as <laughs> Steve's resurrection made no sense at all. Yeah, I, I I can't argue with that. But like I said, I was at this point, I was still giving the film far too much credit thinking there's going to be some sort of payoff where it's obvious that Steve can't stay here. It's yeah, obvious right. that at some point you're going to, you know, I didn't know they were going to say I revoked my wish or whatever they said at the end, but I thought it's obvious that he can't be here. You know, it's obvious that he, he died at the end of the first film because of all the references in Justice League. I thought, okay, I've, I've got to get my head around the fact that there's got to be a re... Because like, straight away, was, that's, that's really weird. Why would you do that? All he, all he had to do was just turn up again. I, I don't understand, but I thought it's going to pay off. And like I said, the payoff was, at the end of the film, I go, oh, it didn't pay off. That was it. That, that, part, that was the part of the film that actually held my interest the longest, was what's going to be the payoff with this dude who obviously has been raped by Wonder Woman now. Yeah. Now we've got to look at we've got to look at it this way, and this is where we have to draw the line a little bit. Had this been the other way round, if this was a Superman movie and he'd wished Lois to come back, yeah, and Lois's spirit had inhabited the body of the local neighbor, you know, the girl who lived in the local locality, to and he'd seen down the, the corner shop or whatever. Yeah. So I think there was supposed to be the implication that they knew each other, they'd seen each other before or whatever. Possibly. So yeah. say. He caught the eye of some girl in a coffee shop. The following night, Superman, or Clark Kent, starts talking to this girl, mm-hmm. and she suddenly says, I'm Lois, and he looks at her and she's Lois. When he wakes up with her the following morning, there would be uproar about oh, yeah, this. yeah, of course. Yeah. It would basically be Superman is rapist. The flip side of that is, if I was that guy, I'm not going to be that bothered. God, no. <laughs> I'm going to be straight with you. I wake up in the morning, and I was like, well, hang on. She thinks my name is Steve or something, <laughs> but I got Gal Gadot next to me, and she wants to go for round two. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm Steve. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get off that. I, look, yeah, I don't want to make any connections or comparisons to other franchises that are not DCEU, but we're talking about a fish out of water guy from the past who was a hero of a past war who's been long dead and is now back in a very different future. Um, you know, a very different time to the one he left. Cap when he gets thawed out in 2011. Okay, but just I'll give you a caveat to that, and I've got to be fair. Now I'm a massive MCU fan, but just in case anyone thinks I'm hating on DC, I will give you the caveat that after all this happens, not only does Cap get off with Peggy's uh, niece, mm. he then goes back and ends up with Peggy. So in effect, he had yeah, both of them. Yeah, and, and and as we've as we discussed before, it it but it's not as problem it's not as problematic as what was happening with. Oh, I you know, let's I, call him temporary, temporary standing, Steve. Yeah, they, I don't look. I don't think it, there's anything problematic about the the cap story and the way that plays out at all. I think it's all done perfectly. But what I'm saying is, everyone was willing and complacent, is what I'm saying. They were complacent. Yeah. Now this story had a lot of potential. You know, certainly for humour. What do we get? We got um, him trying on a load of different outfits, which went on far too long. That was the equivalent. Me and you used to have a joke where we used to say if we ever get to write a film, we'd put a little sequence in where we'd try on jaunty hats. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> and that was the equivalent of that. Really, was it was the pretty woman scene, if you like. You were gonna you were gonna sit you were gonna sit outside the dressing room, and I was gonna come out in various frocks. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, the, the, I think the joke started away thin after like the third outfit, and yeah, but that's you know, unfortunately, Steve had to readjust to this dramatically different time that he's now found himself in. It just wasn't taken anywhere, was it? No, that was the weird thing because he said, "I've been here for a while." Yeah. He well as if he just sort of woken up. If that guy was at the party mm. and then the whatever it was called, the possession, if you like, for want of a better word, had taken place, and Steve had just sort of opened his eyes in this other man's body and gone, I don't know where I am. I thought I was dead. Oh look, there's Diana over there. Yeah, I could have kind of said that, but he made out that he'd look for Diana. And he'd found her. Mm. I don't know quite how he'd found her at this big celebrity gala, which you imagine would probably be invite only. But he turned up there and he'd found her. But yeah, like you say, it seemed a bit strange that, like you say, the fish out of water aspect was sort of played down to begin with. And then I know where you're going to now because the next sort of scene was like, look at the wonders of 1984. Yeah. Now, as we like to find out, Diana's wish to get Steve back, like every wish that's made in this film comes at a price. It turns out that that price for Diana is the loss of or the reduction in her powers. That could have made... an. Again, this goes back to Richard Donner's Superman films, like in Superman 2. Superman 2, definitely, yeah. This could have made for a great plot element, um, instead of the way that, to me, it was just squandered here. Because we see that she is not an invulnerable goddess anymore, but nothing is done to explore what that would mean for her, bearing in mind she's lived for thousands of years. Well, like you say, it was kind of of a sort of reduced power that she wasn't aware of. The two things that struck me as a kid was definitely um, Timothy Dalton climbing out from the, the wreckage of uh, the, the truck fire in License to Kill, yeah. where, where I think was the first time I'd ever seen... I don't think I'd ever seen Bon have a bloody lip, let alone look that fucked up. Yeah. The one that tops that for me was Christopher Reeves' Clark Kent getting beaten up in that trucker's diner. Yeah, yeah. Where they don't even just beat him up, they humiliate him as well, you know, they're making him, you know... the you know, sitting him in mashed potato and gone as well. And that one scene where Reeves sort of, I say, I can remember watching as a child when he goes, it's blood, I'm bleeding. This is what blood looks like. Whereas she just sort of went, oh, I'm a bit slower. She didn't really notice, did she? Oh, have you noticed? I I got no problem with the way he was done other than the fact that not enough was done with it. And all we see is that in fights, she's less powerful. Outside of that, there's no kind of character exploration given to the fact that, hang on, am am I mortal now? Does that mean I'm not going to live forever? I say I'm going to jump a little bit ahead as well because the thing was that prior to her realizing that she was losing these powers, she managed to conjure up an invisible jet. Now that's what I was going to say because as, <laughs> as depowered as she was, yeah, she did say that she'd never done before. She's never done that before. She saw her dad do it a few times. Oh yeah, my my dad. Did she say I, I made a coffee cup disappear once, but then I couldn't find it afterwards or something like that? Yeah. Now, I know this was a kind of homage to Wonder Woman of old and the fact that she had an invisible jet, which always struck me. And and it was beautifully parodied in Family Guy. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it was put in as a gag for the fans. You know, going against them, the fact that she's depowered. She shouldn't be able to do stuff like that. (laughs) Look, our co-host from the last episode, Jim Cottle, he's said that, you know, the lasso of truth has now become the lasso of whatever. Because it seems to be that instead of just getting the truth out of people like it did in the first film, it, it can do any number of things now. Well, it, seem, it seems to be some sort of gravity-defying sort of yeah. object. Mm. We'll come more into that later on, I think, when we're talking about other scenes, but yeah. Well, let, let's let's go to the biggest let's go, problem let's of the go, film. Let's go, back to where, let's go back to where we were. Yeah. Right. Big, <laughs> biggest problem of the film, I think, is it's the central plot device. It's this wishing stone or whatever it's called, and Maxwell Lord effectively gaining its power 
which then means that he can grant anyone they wish, whatever it may be. That, for me, is the biggest problem with this film because that almost gives Jenkins carte blanche to come up with any conceivable plot element without the need for any logic or explanation. For me, that just smacks of opening up the plot for some really lazy writing. Well, it's, 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 it's either really lazy writing or let's do something really imaginative. And it just seemed to be that he was sort of going, right, okay, I'm going to take over... There was that big sort of thing that Jenkins had done some interview a couple of months ago where she said, oh, yeah, Maxwell Lord is, you know, is based on Donald Trump. And I've got to be honest, there didn't seem to be an awful lot of Trump in that to me. Not at all. Because this guy, he's, he's a loving father to a degree. If, if you're going to pick someone to take the piss out of Trump and, and to parody Trump, then you don't need to make him as almost sympathetic a person as as Maxwell Lord is made out to be, because and by the end, after you know, bearing in mind he's nearly destroyed the world, he somehow then manages to find his son in the middle of a park somewhere. Uh, we get this sort of tearful, heartfelt reunion, and him kind of regretting what he's done. Ultimately, he learns whatever moral there is hidden in this mess of a story, and there's no payoff, there's no justice for him. I think if Patty Jenkins is using this film as her mouthpiece to speak of her disdain for Trump. I don't think she's done anything particularly. I just, I, I just think it's a, like, like you were saying about the sort of the wish stone thing being lazy. I almost think that comment was lazy. There seems to be this thing in Hollywood that everything has to have a purpose and everything has to yeah. have a voice. The majority of Hollywood and you know movies now are, are sort of filled by people who are supposedly left leaning. Yeah. So naturally would be be anti Trump. Yeah. And sometimes I just think people just say it for effect. Yeah, yeah. Because when she said that, I, that was the one thing that sort of almost put me off this film whereas like i don't need another film to tell me that trump is bad or i don't need another it's like neil 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 gaskin has got enough common sense in his brain to tell him that donald trump isn't a nice guy and what he doesn't need then is a film and look some of the pastiche on real world donald trump with the eruption out of the ground of this big wall around egypt i could not but think that she said that as almost like an afterthought it just seemed a bit, I don't know, it's just a bit lazy, really. Oh, we're gonna go, I'm gonna go and speak to some sheik, and he's gonna, I'm gonna take all of his oil so he can be the sort of like the king of his land. Right, putting aside politics proper, <laughs> let, let's look at the sexual politics in the film because my wife is a feminist. She did a verbal eye roll at the point where we see Barbara leaving uh, wherever she was when she was looking at the microfilm, and she'd previously had the running with that guy, that you know, very creepy guy who looked very much like a rapist or whatever. And then as she's leaving the building, every single guy that she goes past does a wolf whistle or makes a sexist comment or, or is just a general pig. And the fact that all that needed, that scene needed, was, was for her to leave the museum or wherever she was to bump into the guy that she'd previously been attacked by, that would have been enough. To fill the gaps in between with all of those men, to hammer home the fact that all men are bad, even though, yes, we are in a, a far less enlightened period of time in 1984, do we really need things to be rammed home as ham-fisted and as clumsily as that? It's, it's weird because I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day when we were saying about the carry-on films after Barbara Windsor died. We were saying that as kids, these films that now wouldn't be shown on TV at all, would they? Let's be honest. Yeah, no. Carry-on films were, were, were shown during the summer holidays at like sort of 11 or 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Why don't you watch your cartoons, you watch your, your sort of kids' TV if you like. Yeah. And they sort of figured out the kids might still be watching TV and they put carry-on films on. Yeah. Now, this sort of bawdy, sort of like end of the peer humour for the international listeners, the only reference I can give you that any of you guys might be able to glean from is Benny Hill. Yes, very much. But as children, we sort of laughed at it and thought it was funny. And then as you get a bit older, you realise that it's from a different time and, you know, these things don't fly anymore. Yeah. 
Now, I can kind of accept that 1984, what would I have been? I would have eight going on nine. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of accept that the, perhaps there was that sort of baldy sort of humour around. But I don't accept the fact that every man was a pig. And it seemed to be, that was immediately, as soon as I started seeing this, I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of, like, they did it with, with uh, Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, baby, give me a smile. Hey, baby, it's called the cockpit. That means you can't come in. Even when that sort of attitude was being portrayed in films and yeah. you know, on TV and stuff like that, not everyone was like that. No, that's right. It just seemed really strange that some guy comes up to her in a park as she's walking back and is like, hey, baby, come here. You all right? Let me walk you home. And she's like, no, I'm fine, thank you. No, baby, let me grab hold of you awkwardly. I'm going to be a potential rapist or, you know, you know, I'm going to commit sexual assault. And Diana saves her. Not only that, but then when she gets these powers, somehow she's on, like, a different side of town now and stuff like that. The same pervert is just there again in his dirty trench coat. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what? Is it just, like, a rapist on every corner? It just seems like a lazy sort of analogy, and it's just like a lazy sort of storytelling mode, like to go into. When when you're doing it beyond that one character, if you've got the one character doing it, it's fine, it works. But when you've got every man that she meets when she leaves that building, that's making a comment and whatever, it, it's just it's too much. And it, when she sort of got a sort of like a va va voom, if you like, you know, when mm. she could finally walk in heels, it was like every guy was sort of like as she walked past was like saying, "Hey, buddy, I'd hit that." We're two guys. We've we've worked in the same workplaces. We've been around attractive women. Have we ever had those conversations, like within you know, especially within earshot of someone? Never. You know, is is there ever been a time when someone's walked past, like a really attractive woman's walked past us two, and we've gone, "I'd hit that," you know it, buddy, exactly. and then fist bumped each other. You know, it's just it's just like so cliched and corny, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like let's just put it that way. There's better ways of doing this. This is just one of a number of problems, but. At that point in the film, Neil, aside from all of the really poorly handled sexual politics, which I've got to say as well, is one thing that the first film did brilliantly. Wonder Woman was great. She was all-powerful and whatever, but it was never to the detriment of of men. She was never man-shaming. She was never... I was going to say, I believe we used that when we were talking about Captain Marvel. Yeah. We we, we were saying... We made a positive comparison to Wonder Woman. Yeah, but literally, she, she was with a team of men when she went to that battlefield, when she went to No Man's Land. And it wasn't as if... Oh, you useless men. Right, gender didn't matter, did it? It was basically, I'm an all-powerful daughter of a god, so I'm I'm in charge, but you guys can help me as much as you can, like. Exactly. Much like in our, obviously, recent rundown of season two of The Mandalorian, the actual gender of a character doesn't matter. It's the character that matters and what they can do and the position they've earned. And this film just kind of undone all of the goodwill that it had earned in the first one by handling that aspect of things so well. And it, it seems strange that for, you know, as this is bizarre because I'm slightly defending a DC film and I'm slightly defending this director as well. There's a noticeable difference. Now Zack Snyder's not involved. Yeah, and I, I agree. You know, it'd be easy for me. Like I say, I've, I'm not a massive, like Batman v Superman, the first sort of 15, 20 minutes of this, I went into the film having read the bad reviews and thought, wow, this is going to prove it wrong. This is going to be like Watchmen, you know, Watchmen with, with Batman and Superman. Mm-hmm. And then quickly sort of descending into no, it's a flaming mess. I'm not going to diss him on Justice League because as as become as has become apparent, really, he probably only filled about twenty thirty percent of that film. Mm-hmm. But if you look at that with Joss Whedon taking over, these films aren't great. And then as we say, when the the original Wonder Woman came out, it was almost like a shot in the arm, wasn't it? Where you sort of went, okay, I kind of you know kind of like this, and then sort of like get more and more into the film. This is actually a good film. Yeah. And then once you sort of like set your brain to, oh my God, this isn't a train wreck, you could sit back and enjoy it. Hmm. And it does seem as if there's a slight undoing of all that with this film, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It was also apparent to me, Neil, that 
quite a way into the film. We've, we've had that opening action scene in the mall, which I don't think was done particularly well. We had the bit in Egypt on the road where, aside from the fact that they very conveniently driven past Maxwell Lord, oh, that's him. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's that's. I was going to say that that bit in particular. Yeah, right. But then I think the action scene that followed, then the 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 whole freeway chase or whatever you want to call it, with a depowered Diana, you know, having to struggle her way through something which she would usually make light work of. I thought that the way it was shot, you know, from a point of view of just the way the action was handled and directed, was done well. Yeah, I gotta be. I gotta be fair with that. This this film was actually lacking. It sounds strange to say for a superhero movie, it's lacking big action set pieces. But what I will say is the opening bit of the mall was, like I say, was almost like an homage to sort of 80s superhero movies, if you like. Mm-hmm. This bit, I was like, oh, right, okay, I'm really enjoying this. So, you know, after watching The Mandalorian and seeing what they're doing on a film set and then watching this set piece, which I thought was thoroughly entertaining, I'll give you that. But then every now and then when this goes to a broader shot and a wider shot, I'm like... I, I, I thought from the point of view of the visuals, I thought it was... It was shot It was shot well, and it was like sort of almost, if you like, almost like Raiders-esque, wasn't it? Where you had the sort of convoys of trucks and tanks and She's stuff like that. She's under the truck, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'll give it that, and it was good. But every time it went to a wide shot, I was like, my God, this looks really bad now. This looks really sort of CGI heavy. Right, bearing in mind, Neil... That that's the second of probably only three big action set pieces or action set pieces at all in this film. Whereas moving on in the film, when towards the end, and did it sit right with you, Neil, the way that Barbara went from being getting to grips with the results of her wish to all of a sudden then doing this about turn and becoming the full on bad girl of the film? Well, it seemed just it seemed quite a sort of strange transition for me because you have that sort of like you say they went to the White House. They had well, again referencing a sort of Superman two. Mm. Where you have a battle in a White House, where she got the better of Diana. Yeah. You know, she didn't know that Diana had lost any powers or anything like that. She didn't know any of that. Speaking of from Barbara's point of view, she'd faced up against her nemesis, if you like, with a newfound nemesis, and she bested her. Yeah. Quite easily. You know, there was no point where, you know, where Diana was saying, well, if I had my full powers, I'd fuck you up. It seemed quite strange that she got on the plane with Maxwell Lord, and then for some reason she went, I want to become an apex predator. When they were saying about the, the cheetah character, straight away I thought, you just don't do that. If Nolan was doing The Dark Knight, I mean, said, Heath Ledger, I want you to play this character exactly like Cesar Romero. W- would that have fitted? Would that have gelled? As much as, as much as I love Cesar Romero, would that have fitted with the context of this film? And when they were saying cheated, I was thinking, well, that seems like a really weird choice. And then we'd seen some of the, the sort of trailers and the previews, but there was rumours of reshoots. We'd seen this sort of dodgy-looking cheetah, almost a glimpse of it. Well, Barbara, what have you done? When she showed up in the White House, and she was sort of like, almost like sort of Madonna-esque in a sort of outfit, wasn't she, if you like? Yeah. She had the sort of leather jacket on with the spikes on, you know, the, the sort of stripy tights, uh, sort of stockings, whatever she was wearing, the sort of leopard skin skirt. I thought, just keep it as that. Keep it, yeah. It's like it's like in The Dark Knight Rises, where selena kyle is a cat burglar she's never referred to as cat woman but she's mm. referred to as a cat burglar that's a, that's as far as we need to push it the, the, the point i'm making neil is the fact that <laughs> the, <laughs> she then literally <laughs> becomes she says i want to be an apex predator and then she literally becomes a character from cats yeah and it did seem strange to me that there obviously were reshoots on this film let's be honest we haven't been exactly kind of this film i think we've been fair Right, but there were rumours for months preceding the initial release mm. that this film had gone down badly. The preview screenings had not gone down well. 
there were rumours that had been not just... I mean, with most major sort of motion pictures now, we accept the fact that... I mean, we look at a lot of the Marvel stuff. goes back for reshoots. And you kind of accept now that, you know, okay, test audiences, we're going to tinker with it, we're going to do reshoots. Yeah. There have been rumours of heavy reshoots with this. Now, let me take you back to a simpler time, Sky, when there wasn't this sort of... This invisible sort of death knoll upon us all. We weren't all sort of confined to our houses. Yeah. What was perhaps the most mocked and biggest flop film of 2019? It was Cats, wasn't it? It was. Why, why would you think I'm going to make I... the bad guy, <laughs> or the, the main villain, look like? I know. And let's be honest, I've not seen Cats. I've only seen, you know, trailers and snippets. What I can tell you for the trailers and snippets is... James Corden, dressed as a fucking cat, looks better than Kirsten Wig did at the end of that. It didn't even look like Kirsten Wig, which no, is weird. It didn't look anything like her. But this, for me, her sort of transition as she was going on, I was thinking, oh, it's not actually a bad role for her. She's got, you know, because when she started off, she was basically playing Kirsten Wig, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. As she was getting more and more evil and she was getting a little bit more sort of narcissistic and upset and, you know, sort of embracing, you know, a sort of darker side, I was thinking, it's not actually a bad role from her. And then we got to this bit. And I was like, ah, for fuck's sake. I think, look, I think we've covered the major problems with the latter half of the film by flitting back and forth from earlier points just to sort of reiterate how later things that come up in the film just make little sense. They have a big dust up. Uh, she dons that golden suit, which, well, it, it was the, this hero of old that um, they, had a, they had a battle against one of their enemies and she donned this golden suit and she fended off their enemy and sacrificed herself so the rest of them could escape back to Themyscira. And... Later on, you know, Diana was able to find this suit. And it, you know, by that point, bearing in mind, I was really looking forward, almost from a point of view of just how kitsch and, and camp and, and, and over the top and 80s it would look seeing it in this gold wing suit. By the time it came round and the way the action or the fight scene was done, it completely deflated any sort of excitement I had. Yeah, they kind of jumped a shot with that, didn't they? Because Massively. Any sort of impact you would have had out of Cena in this sort of like Eros-type looking suit, we'd already seen it. It had been on every poster. It had been on every trailer. It had been... It was like, oh, there's no wow factor there at all. And I will be honest as well, it was one of those things where in the trailers, I can remember reading criticism. Someone said, oh, you know, Wonder Woman shouldn't wear a suit of armor. You know, Wonder Woman is a suit of armor. She mm-hmm. doesn't need a suit of armor. And I was like, I, yeah, I kind of side with you. And then, then other people that put in the comments below it, Oh, and it looks terrible, and it looks CGI, and it looks this. And I was like, watching the trailers, I was like, it doesn't look that bad, actually. You yeah. Know, it looks... For some reason, in the film, when I'm watching it now, I was like, sort of like, oh, it looks really tacky. I, I can't explain that, but it, 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 didn't, it didn't really cause me concern. No. And then when I saw it, I was in, in the context of the film, I was like, sort of like, oh, looks a bit shit, really. You just said, you, you, you said maybe we've been harsh on this film. I, I think we've been fair. Yeah, yeah. Overall, Wonder Woman 1984... Is there anything glowingly positive that you've got to say about it? I will be honest. There's probably a deeper meaning to it. That at one stage, I thought when they would do when he when Maxwell Lord was doing all this, you know, tell me what you wish for, tell me what you desire. Do you remember the sort of early sort of well, probably mid two thousands now when um, there was that book, The Secret, came out, and then people were making millions of pounds basically from just selling the, the power of positive thinking. And I thought they're going to do something along those lines. I thought I don't know why they're going to sort of suddenly decide to make to champion this, but they're going to sort of do this. And I was like bits of it. Where I thought I can see a deeper meaning to it. Definitely. I mean, if you look at like Barbara, it's like there's a difference between what you what you desire and what you need. Yeah. She instantly looked at Diana and she went, "You look amazing." Well, you know, everyone's going to look at her and say, "You look amazing." But she was like, "How do you walk in those heels? How do you be so confident? How do you be there?" So 
And he was like, I just want to be like you. Yeah. Well, what she, what she really should have thought was, I need to take a good look at myself. Yes. Because it was almost like a sort of the sort of key to the, the the kingdom was her being able to walk in heels. You know, the minute she could do that, she had confidence to do whatever. She didn't need, she didn't really need anything else. She didn't need the strength. She didn't need the powers. That's right. She also, she was confidence. If you look at Maxwell Lord, and I think Neil, what you've done there is you've answered the question I asked earlier because this does, in a way, link back to that original scene with young Diana cheating to get what she wants. Well, yeah, it's the thing. If you look at Maxwell Lord, I mean, so we get a little glimpse, don't we, into sort of his past. Yeah. Where he's he's not a great dad to begin with. He's like, oh God, not another weekend, and you know, it's like when he's sort of saying, oh God, is it is it my weekend already? And he's got to have the kid and stuff like that. Yeah. It was almost going to be that corny cliche thing, but the other side of it was, Daddy needs to work because he needs to give you everything. Yeah. And it, that seemed to be the driving factor. Now, when you when you had the little flashbacks to Maxwell Lord's childhood, you had the sort of like kid sat there with holes in his shoes, watching the richer kids get on with it, you know, all, all the more well to do kids, if you like, get on with it and sort of blaming everything. But then you had a little glimpse of when he'd obviously wet the bed and his father was ashamed of him and sort of slapping him and showing him like the mess he made on the bed. And it was basically like, right, you you, you desire to be this multimillionaire so you can prove to your son your success. Mm. What you need to do is look after your son, is become the father that you never had. And it was almost that sort of caveat. So I can kind of see what they were doing there. And like I say, looking at it from an almost fairness point of view, that's me having to think about it. There was nothing there for... Basically, if I wanted to have this conversation with you tonight and we were in recording it, I don't know whether I'd have thought as deeply about the story as I had, as I had to to sort of justify it. I fully agree, Neil. I fully agree. And do you know what, Neil? One of the biggest problems that we haven't mentioned... Well, one of the biggest problems of the film for me... Last episode, we discussed season two of The Mandalorian. Hero of that show being Pedro Pascal. Doesn't put a foot wrong throughout. For me, he's turned out to be the villain of this episode because in more ways than one, his performance is just is so hammy and over the top. There's no subtlety to it. By the end, I'm thinking, well, hang on, you've gone way too far now, fella. You actually, the authority surely would be coming after you after what you've done. And yet, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him a bit of a break with that. What you gotta look at is, like I say, this has been like subject to. I mean, some parts of this you would literally Justice League style edit or Suicide Squad even style editing, if you like. What I thought they've gone and ch- cut massive, which is strange to say of a film which is how long, two and a half hours old. Yeah, yeah. They've they've cut massive chunks out of this because it's jumping from one thing to another. I don't know how much of his performance has been lost with reshoots, rewrites, editing, studio panic, whatever. There was no real part of it. I gotta be honest. There was no real part of it where I thought he was given much to do. No, you know. So, like you say, we go from the one extreme of him being sort of like a sort of a deadbeat dad to being a sort of confidence trickster. The one part where he was sort of like almost sort of begging in the beginning, he's uh, one of the guys he sort of ripped off. I was sort of empathising with him then, but it, his character just seemed to be all over the shop. It seemed to be jumping, like you say, from one extreme to the other all the time. I don't know how much of that is to do with Pedro Pascal. Like like the same way no one sets out to make a bad movie, no actor sets out to give a bad performance. Going on The Mandalorian, going on Narcos, the small part we saw him in Game of Thrones, Kingsman, he's not a bad actor by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I think he's a damn good actor. He's proven that. But again, is he, you know, again, is he wrong for that type of role? I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt of the film being heavily sort of like sort of contained. So he didn't well, really maybe have... It, maybe just Neil at some point in the edit and in in the, the, the mishmash of, of problems with the film, the actual tone of the film has been changed. And unfortunately, it's been changed to the point that it didn't suit the performance he originally gave. It's like De Niro doesn't do comedy. 
You know, it's like if you watch him in like sort of like Meet the Fockers, Meet the Parents, stuff like that, analyze it, it's like cringe. And as I was thinking about saying, I was thinking, ah, but Midnight Run. Yeah. You yeah. know, for me to say De Niro doesn't do comedies, you know, De Niro does like straight roles, De Niro does hard man roles, De Niro does gangster roles. He shouldn't do comedy, but then you go Midnight Run. So I think with most actors, if they're given the right direction, if they're given the right script, mm-hmm. then they can do it. Being fair to Pascal, I don't think he was ever really given much of a chance to do anything in this film other than give the performance he gave. If we're gonna go on, if we're gonna go on about like little sort of plot holes, how come Wonder Woman can fly now? I've seen her in two films since where she's had to catch a plane. Oh Neil. Oh. <laughs> but it's more problems. Pl- it's more problems, isn't it? If that film had ended, right, I was thinking that when towards the end I thought, okay. See what's happening now. Everyone's renouncing their wishes. Everyone's going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be forgotten about. Because it is forgotten about when she meets the guy who Steve was possessing his body. He doesn't remember, does he? No. And i got to be honest, I quite liked that scene at the end. I was like, did they just film that knowing it was going to come out of Christmas? She's walking through a little Christmas market. I thought you know? the same thing. I thought, yeah, is this literally attacked on ending the time with the fact that this is now a Christmas film? Because her hair looked different as well. Her hair looked a little longer. Yeah. And I was thinking, if they just filmed that on now, thinking, well, we're going to do the HBO thing now, so we're going to release it at Christmas. And it was a great bit where I was like, just expecting, you know, when he was talking to her, and he was like, hey, you know, I love it, I love it too, it's lovely at Christmas, oh yeah, it's beautiful, nice to meet you, and stuff like that. I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great now if his wife and kids did it? I'm like, daddy, who's that lady? Awkward, awkward. <laughs> Jeffrey? Jeffrey, <laughs> who is that woman? <laughs> Neil, what about the post credit scene? Oh. This this just comes full circle because I couldn't eloquently put into words because it was something I hadn't given thought of before the podcast, the last podcast, when I was talking about fan service. Mm. You know, our good friend Moose on Twitter did a little video for us on fan service. He did, Moose Matson, he did. And he, he, he put it far more like people are doing this to me all the time now lately. Uh Fran did it to me the other day. People put things on Twitter and they, they I, I'll blurt something out in my own sort of punch drug way on this podcast, and then people come on Twitter and thankfully like our podcast, but then give better sort of more eloquent versions of what I've said. Yeah. This, right, you're watching Diana walking through a Christmas market after we've just seen her, same coat, same hair, everything like that. Then a lamppost falls and she catches it. Uh-huh. She turns around and it's not, it's not, it's not Gal Gadot, is it? It's Linda Carter. It's Linda Carter. And she sort of says, it's okay, I've been doing this for a long time. And gives a little wink, oh. like, like like Wonder Woman did at the beginning, and that's the end of it. And initially I went, oh, that's cool. And then 20 seconds and I went, that's shit. I know. <laughs> that is the definition of fan service. It is. That is literally, and this is what we was, I can't remember whatever film we were talking about, uh, one of the previous casts, where I was like, I hope if they do it, they don't get the original stars back like they did with Starsky and Hutch with, you know, Ben Stiller and Vince, you know, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, won it? And they just happened to bump into the, you know, David Soul and um, Michael Glazier at the end. And they're like, hey, look after the car for us. And it's like, well, that makes no sense. Makes no sense at all, does it? Ever the fact that we can sit there and go, oh, dear, the originals. Well, I think the thing with this film is she wasn't actually being Wonder Woman. She was supposed to be the the, the character who had defended the rest of them against that horde. Yeah, yeah, in the gold suit. So she was supposed to be her. She wasn't actually playing Wonder Woman. But by that point... Yeah, there was no need for that. And it was just like, literally, that was like the definition of fan service. And I almost imagined some studio bigwig just sitting there going, oh, but if we put Linda Carter in the the, the mid-title sting. And it's like, just don't do it. It had no relevance at all. Total fan service. In which case, Neil, let's bring things to a close. What's your final thoughts and your score out of 10 for Wonder Woman 1984? 
it's like I say, we keep saying car crash and train wreck and stuff like that. It's one of those films that it held my attention all the way through it, but it's just not a good film. Unfortunately, it's just not a good film. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to score this film seven out of ten. I oh, would yeah. like, I would like to. I'd like to be and, able to do the same. And probably on enjoyment factor, pointing out the foibles and picking up on the the, the potholes and having a little laugh as I was watching it, it probably would be a seven out of ten. But as a quality of film. I can't score this any higher than a five out of ten. Yeah, I think yeah. we've we've spent well over an hour now, Neil, just dissecting this film. We found very little good about it at all. Do you know one of the problems for me, Neil, in watching this film is immediately, well, not immediately, but a few hours afterwards, I was sat in front of the TV, uh, flicking channels. The original Wonder Woman was on, and I watched the last act. Bear in mind, that's for me the weakest part of the film. That held my attention far more than this entire film did it's not to say i dislike this film it's just one of those things where i went along for the ride i didn't find it particularly offensive it's only afterwards where things have you know sank in i've had time to reflect on it and maybe if we weren't doing an episode on it i wouldn't have had to give it as much thought like you said earlier yeah and this is what we gotta think as well it's like you say a we were doing an episode so like i say when i started looking for the deeper meanings i can see a deeper meaning there with the sort of want and need and what what you desire against what you really should have yeah i can understand that sort of running theme through i don't think it was put it that's me interpreting it. i don't there was definitely enough film to suggest that was the case yeah the other side i would say with that is you and i cards on the table we love the mcu we go and watch a bad mcu film and we'll go right this is gonna fuck up everything now with captain marvel i mean take whatever you want from that film it's, it's down recorded it's on tape <laughs> <laughs> what we thought of it yeah even if you take that out of the equation the bigger implication is how is this going to affect the films that i do like yeah now i haven't got that with dc films because a i'm not particularly into the dcu at the moment because they haven't given me anything to be into well, i think the thing is neil the damage had been done several films ago I was going to say, and B, there seems to be no running narrative for the films anyway. Yeah. They've already announced now they're going to make a third Wonder Woman film, now with Jenkins and Gadot again. Yeah. And they're saying it's going to be set in the future, or in, in the near future. So that has no sort of real bearing now on the events of Batman v Superman. That has no, definitely no bearing on the events of Justice League. That has no bearing on the upcoming Flash movie, Flashpoint. You know, there has no bearing on any of the sort of TV products that Warner Brothers have announced. Now they're going to they're going to try HBO Max is going to try and take on Disney Plus. Disney Plus announces like twenty new sort of Marvel and Star Wars properties, and they're going well. Okay, well we're going to we're going to make a DC series and a DC film, and they're going to be released on HBO Max. But none of these films seem to tie in with each other. Mm. So yeah. when I watch Wonder Woman now, I go, okay, that was disposable. So, you know, like it's, it's, as much as we've absolutely there, it's not a bad film as in to sit there and watch it on TV, is no, it? No, I agree. On, I agree, yeah. The same, the sort of, the balancing sort of scale of whatever happens in this film is not going to destroy the next Batman film because no. the next Batman film has got a different Batman in it. Yeah. And it's, and it's set in 1980, you know? It's not going to affect the next Man of Steel film because that Man of Steel Man of Steel 2 has been being made for the last eight years, nine years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we still haven't got a de- you know, We don't even know if Henry Cavill's going to be Superman anymore. Taking away the sort of precious elements, if this had been an MCU film, I'd be like, oh my God, you know, where do we go from here now? How mm. is this going to tie in? But with a DC film, I kind of go, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. And just get on with my life. <laughs> yeah, I know. And But then, you know, looking at, you know, we, we went into this trying to look at things objectively and putting aside scoring it just on enjoyment factor or just looking at the quality of the film as a whole. I'm with you, Neil. I've got to give it a five out of ten. 
And when I think of it too much, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I'm be, even being a bit generous there. There's nothing. There's nothing in that film that's that insulting that it needs to go any lower than that. No. And to us, to us. Yeah. Now, if I was a hardcore DCU fan or mm-hmm. DCEU fan, there may, well, there probably would be more for me to go, I'm invested in this franchise, I'm invested in this. You know, you imagine now if we're watching, I don't know, right, if we're watching Iron Man 2. Yeah. You know, in Iron Man 2, Tony Stark's got different powers to what he has in the, the, the Avengers. You know, whatever, like, you know. I, you I know, don't know what you mean, yeah. Really, that would really fucking annoy yeah, you. Yeah, would, with, would. This, I, with this, I just kind of go, oh, she can fly in this one, okay. No, I I, I know, I know. I, yeah. Yeah, I fully agree, Neil. That's why I'm going to score the same as you. A lot of problems with it. The film didn't offend me um, in any, you know, to any great degree. But in, in the days that's passed, I've had time to, you know, dwell on things in, in prep for this episode. My brain has only gravitated towards the problems with it, and I found very little overly positive things about it. You know, comparing it to how much I enjoyed the first film. So yeah, it's a five out of ten from me as well. So it's quite easy to average out the scores there. It's a film eighty nine verdict for Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four of five out of ten. And that, that gives us no pleasure from saying that. None at all. None at all. So uh, we put out a yet an end of year post on social media asking for what films you'd like us to cover on the podcast in 2021. And I think after that, Neil, I need a bit of positive uh, sort of thing now. Wonder Woman 3. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Aquaman 2. <laughs> We've had to narrow them down because we are a little bit pushed for time now, so apologies in advance for anyone who's responded who doesn't get a mention. But first off was Justin Reynard, who says, How about more favourite fives, as I'd love to hear you guys cover topics like favourite action films and westerns. Yeah, we haven't done that for a while. We haven't done top fives. Or... We, we've, we've done plenty of favourite threes and fives and even tens on occasion, but yeah, we haven't yeah. done that for a while. Action films, yeah, you know. We're bringing that back. We're bringing that back. Definitely. We're bringing it back. But the one that the, the daunting for me is favorite five westerns with so many to choose from. Oh my word! And again, when you go to action films, do you class you know do you class Predator as an action film, or is it science fiction? Ooh, so you got to can of worms. Good comment, but you got to give it a little bit more thoughts then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, next up, Scott Porter says. Your Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode was, in his words, friggin' awesome. I need you to give us more of that Tarantino awesomeness, but starting with Reservoir Dogs and working your way through his entire filmography, and more Tony Stella, please. Scott, I'm 100% on board with you. Uh, I'm a massive fan of Tarantino. When I did the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'd literally seen the film, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour before, and I was still digesting the film. I would love to do that type of uh, retrospective, if you like, on Tarantino stuff. Pulp Fiction, up there, probably in my top five. So I would absolutely love to do that. Yeah, definitely, Scott. That's a, that's a great suggestion. We'll look at that next year. The way, the way cinema is going, we're definitely going to be doing a lot of retrospectives, no, exactly, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> David Bond on Twitter says, what about another audio commentary like the Jaws one or a best of year as with episode 50? Also, just as an idea, a troll through the best Vietnam War films. I'm sure whatever it will be, it will be a top listen. Well, as we've said recently, Neil, we're going to be doing a follow-up to our Jaws audio commentary. Um, obviously, uh, you know, COVID allowing. Um, as far as another, you know, the whole thing, the 1990 episode tied in nicely with our, you know, 50th episode because it was all five of the core 89, uh, core film 89 team coming together. So, yeah, we're going to have to think of something special for our 100th episode, Yeah. Yeah, that that'll be like our um, well, you know, that's like our Avengers episode, isn't it? Where we all assemble. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen <laughs> so, yeah. very often, but when it does, it's memorable. Yeah. 
Lauren Hines says, I know you've covered them on the site, but please, 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 can you also cover the Lord of the Rings trilogy on the podcast? They're my all-time favorite films, and I'd love to hear a Film 89 group discussion on them. It's it's on the cards, Lauren. It's on the cards. I won't be on that episode, no, Lauren. I, Neil I, won't I will, be. It's not, it's not to knock the films for whatever reason. I, and I have tried twice to get into those films for whatever reason. They just don't do it for me. I, I'm not knocking anyone that likes them. I know Sky loves them. I know a few of the other guys on the Film 89 team love them as well. I'm not knocking anyone from, but yeah, definitely that'd be great episodes. And they are great films. They are great films, but just not for me. Yeah, fear not, Lauren. That particular itch of yours is going to be scratched at some point soon. Right, Luke Ingram says, "Please, can you cover more classic films such as The Third Man and obviously Citizen Kane? Because Orson Welles is one of my favorite filmmakers and actors. Also, Touch of Evil and Lady from Shanghai would be great films for you to cover." All I'll say, Luke, is two of those films you've mentioned there are definitely going to be covered, one of them, very soon. And finally, Tom O'Donnell says, I've loved your in-depth episodes on films like The Shining, Goodfellas, First Blood and Apocalypse Now, which are some of my favourite episodes of any podcast. But I'd love to hear you cover some of my favourite films of the 70s, such as The Godfather, The Exorcist, Enter the Dragon and Taxi Driver. Oof. Well, first of all, thank you for that. That's a a lovely comment. Yes, it is, Um, As we all know, Richard has been pitching the End of the Dragon <laughs> episode to us for a long time. That was I'm calling him Richard again. Like yeah. He's in trouble, like he's a naughty boy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd, lo- I'd love to do any of those. Yeah. Um, definitely, yeah, without, without a shadow of a doubt. And we will get around to them. What people need to realise is that we don't get paid for doing this. We, know, we do it in our spare time. We've we all got jobs, we've all got families, we've all got whatever. Yeah. If we sat down and gave everyone our list of to, our sort of to-do list, you'd be amazed with what we what we'd love to do, and it's just getting around to doing it, isn't it? It's, yeah, it, it's almost daunting out you know, the the amount of films that. But you know, it means that we're never going to be we're never going to run out of stuff to talk about, is it? Literally, never going. Like you say, well, that's the sort of Tarantino suggestion. Yeah, there's like seven or eight films we could talk about in depth. There, they could be an episode each. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so but I, I can guarantee, Tom, that in 2021, you're going to see at least one of those films covered. I, I'd say, yeah, maybe more, but yeah. But again, thank you, Tom. That's a lovely thing. Thanks, mate. That, that's really lovely. So that was it, Neil. That, that That's either our first episode of 2021 or our last episode of 2020 or, or kind of both. I think it's going to, yeah, it's going to bridge the gap. We, we kind of ended on a bum note, which I suppose is suitable, really, for the year we've just had. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Like you say, the last episode we did of uh, 2019, you know, I was coming up like I was Don King, wasn't I? Saying, well, you know, it was going to be the biggest and best year we'd ever had. We were going to do this, yeah. we were going to do that. We truly planned to do that, didn't we? We had some massive blockbusters coming out, numerous films we could look at as retrospectives. Yeah. It's still new to us that we're doing this on Skype because we're used to everyone sort of crashing at Film 89 Towers or coming down and sitting in Three King Studios. Mm-hmm. And what people don't perhaps get glimpsed from this a lot of time, one of the nicest comments I always often see about this is it's like being in a pub, sitting on a table, having a couple of beers with your mates talking about movies. What, what's, what's, a, uh, what's a pub, Neil? Well, exactly. I was going to say, this is what we started off doing, wasn't it? It was a group of friends talking. Uh-huh. And that's how we like to do it. And now it's really strange that we have to do this remotely and on Skype and it's stuff not, like that. It's not the same, is it? It's not the same. We're still getting our heads around it. To do a retrospective, you have to go back, you have to rewatch a film, you have to research the film, you have to mm. think about why you liked it, why you disliked it, how your feelings have changed towards it. And there's a lot of thought goes into it. Yeah, a lot, 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 lot of prep. If you go watch, for instance, say Wonder Woman in the cinema, you come out and you go, I liked it or I disliked it, this is why I liked it or this is why I didn't dislike it. Yeah. We've had we've sort of had that taken away from us this year. 
it's no big thing. It's like, you know, first world problems, isn't it? Mm. Because compared to what other people are putting up with, us moaning about the fact we can't go to the cinema is pretty petty and pretty, you know, pretty insignificant. But oh, yeah. of all the things that have been sort of restricted and taken away from us this year, us not just being able to go, let's go and watch the new Avengers movie or, yeah. you know, let's go and check this out. I mean, the Doctor Sleep episode that you and Steve did, I turned up on spec. I mean, I could have done the, ep- I didn't even do the episode, did I? No. You know, it's just literally like, yeah, the film's out. Let's go watch it. We'll go meet the guys and we'll go watch a movie together. Yeah. And that's what I've really missed this year. I know. Me too. Me too. Oh, and I don't even know when we're going to be back to any sort of thing of normality. Because even if, by some miracle, if we got out of this by the middle of next year, we're still going to have the problem of the cinemas, are, they're not there anymore. They, they, they're going to be in serious financial trouble if they're not already on their knees now. Well, funny enough, I sent you a thing earlier, didn't I, where I was saying like, the three top films for this year... Oh. With Bad Boys for Life, Tenet, and Sonic. Yeah. And both of us said that Sonic the Hedgehog was the best out of those three. <laughs> but if you look, I mean, even Bad Boys, I mean, that, that took, I mean, that sort of bridged the sort of gap between pre COVID and COVID, didn't it? And that took 426 million. Yeah. For that to be the biggest film of the year, it's crazy. It Absolutely is. crazy. Oh, dear. I mean, the one good thing is we've had so many good TV shows this year. We've had, you know, The Boys, we've had The Mandalorian, we've had the second season of The Umbrella Academy. We've had some great TV movies as well, if you like, the subscription movies. We had Borat 2, we had Extraction. Yeah. Trial of the Chicago 7, which for me was one that I thought. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I finally got into Ozark. Yeah. It's It's been silver linings, but... Yeah, one thing we did at the end of last year, and we did it in a big way, is we all did our top ten list of the year for the site. Neil, I don't even know if I've I don't even know if if I've got ten memorable films that I've seen this year. Yeah, like you said, I could literally I was gonna say I could count on one hand, but I could probably count on three fingers. Yeah, it's the same year and it I, I just really hope we're in a different position next year and we get to some degree of normality. And I was gonna say as as hard as we've been on Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, yeah. I can't help but think that if this had just been another trip to the cinema for us, we'd have been a little harsher on this film. I think we would have. And I think there was definitely a part of me that was just like, do you know what? I'm just glad to be watching a film again. Yeah, almost giving it a break. I mean, Extraction, uh, the Chris Hemsworth one, was a sort of good action. I mean, I love action films. It was a good action film. It was almost as if I was just glad to see a new movie. You know, and that's what I'm worried about. You know, it's like the fact that, like you say, well, they've rolled out a new vaccine today. Have they approved a new vaccine today in, in Britain? I, mean, I don't know about the rest of the world, but by the time all this gets rolled out, by the time everyone gets vaccinated, by the time all this calms down, everyone gets herd immunity and all that, we could be looking conceivably at 2022. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think, yeah, that's how it's looking. Is it going to get to the stage where, you know, like you say, like if you look at Bond, there was pretty sort of, I remember you say speculative rumor, there was pretty strong suggestion. They were looking to sell that on Netflix or Apple Plus or whatever, weren't they? You know, Black Widow is eternally on the back burner. We've got a slate of Marvel movies that are sort of either near completion or in production at the moment. When a studio is going to be confident enough to say, and we're talking massive films there, hmm. when a studio is going to be you know, sort of confident to say, yeah, I'm going to release a $50 million, uh, $50 million budget film. Don't know, Neil, and that's the biggest thing, isn't it? It's the uncertainty. It's bizarre to think that this time last year, we were looking forward to a sort of mega blockbuster year, and everything has just been put the brakes on. But like yeah. I say, you look at it from the world's point of view, it's insignificant, isn't it? It is, it is, yeah. So on that positive note... <laughs> Neil, where can people find you on social media if they want to hit you up for a chat about... Leave a painting in a cave or something and I'll find it. If they just want to try and cheer you up, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Neil underscore Gaskin. I'm not really down on the situation, <laughs> honestly. 
Hey, Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> and yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can find the rest of the Film 89 team at their respective uh, Twitter accounts, uh, which you can all access via Film 89 UK on Twitter and Film 89 UK on Facebook. And please check out the website, film89.co.uk. Stephen Saunders has just posted his review of and Neil. Maybe this is the episode that we should have rung the new year in. Do you know, I was actually thinking it. I started watching it on Christmas Day and it was just manic here. Yeah. Oh, okay, I'll do this later on. And I ended up watching it a uh, day before yesterday on my own. I had, like, finally had an hour. It seems strange because I should have sat down with the family and watched it. Yeah. But, uh, but I had an hour to myself and watched it. And yeah, but the film we're talking about is Soul. And what a beautiful film. Steven's review is fantastic. And the little yes. bit that I would personally have just added just for my own thing at the end is, it's the film that 2020 needs. Yeah, what a beautiful way to round out the year. Yeah. And that, perhaps that's a film we should have talked about tonight, but we talked about the one film that... We talked about the film that deserved to be talked about. Deserved to be talked about because of the amount of delays, because of yeah. the disruption. And, and I think that. because basically people would have been, oh, why haven't Film 89 covered Wonder Woman 1984? Well, uh, we yeah. did. And, and, you know, like I say, one great. Yeah, so uh, please, yeah, check out uh, Stephen's review of Soul on, on the website. Uh, oh, I just can't recommend the film enough. It is, uh, I just loved it, and it's just mesmerising. And, yeah, Disney Pixar, it, for me, it's maybe their best film since Wally. Yeah, it's it's quite weird with Pixar, isn't it? Because Pixar do sort of great kid films, and then every now and then, like you say, they do a Wally or they do a Soul, and you just go, oh, wow. Yeah. It's like literally this studio... They can literally do whatever they want. Every now and then they pull out a Wally or they pull out Ratatouille as well, I think is another one that's underrated. Mm-hmm. It you is, know? yeah. Like you say, with the Wally, I'm definitely with Saul, where you think the kids could watch this and they can get something from it. But it's not just like the odd sort of like innuendo joke. Me watching it as a 45-year-old man ends that film going, do I need to think about my life? Do I need to think about whether I'm truly happy with what I'm doing? And do I need to sort of embrace my passion and stuff, you know? I think, Neil, you hit the nail on the head there, because I think anyone asks why we're doing an episode on Wonder Woman 1984, this dwelling in negativity, when we should have done one on Soul. I think it's like you said, Neil, we knew this one was coming. There was a lot of talk about this, and it's been a long time in the making. Um, A lot of hype surrounding it, a lot of news, uh, a lot of delays. Whereas Soul just came out of nowhere. For me, it just came completely out of left field and... Well, it was it was one of those films. It was like literally, oh, oh I'm Pixar are probably going to push Soul back, and I was like, I didn't even know they were making that film. Yeah, and they were like, oh, and then when it was announced, that it was one of those things. It wasn't even big enough to sort of make our sort of little news desk, if you like, on mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter. That when they announced it was going on Disney Plus, I was like, yeah, whatever. I didn't even yeah. know anything about the film, so you know, whatever. And like all the best surprises, it turned out just coming from nowhere and just knocking us for six. We'll give every film the same respect. When James Bond's No Time to Die ends up going on the VOD, as it will, we'll review that as well, okay? Yeah. So there we are. We will indeed. So there you go. Thank you once again for the support. You know, last couple of episodes, our Goodfellas Casino episode, the Mandalorian season two episode, had loads of fantastic feedback and cracking amount of downloads again. We're just extremely grateful for you all. Please, if you could, just as a little post-Christmas gift for us, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. That would uh, make our day. Um, I think that's it, Neil. I'm going to go and cry now <laughs> after all that negativity. Oh, you got to you got to stay safe, stay happy thing because I got a good one. I think, yeah, that's uh, all it leaves us to say is, as we usually do, stay safe. More Now more than ever, stay safe. And more importantly... In the words of John Lennon, happy Christmas and a happy new year. Let's hope it's a good one without any tears. <laughs> that's terrible.
That's <laughs> fucking terrible. <laughs> I just thought that. Fuck off. It's great. <laughs> I'm just going to cut in stay grassy. I'll just say Happy New Year. Fuck it. <laughs> do you want to do that again? Well, the John Lennon one. <laughs> no, just do fucking stay classy. That was a good one. <laughs> 2021. Stay classy, people. <laughs> fucking Jesus. <laughs> do you want to do the third take? <laughs> So that's to do a stay classy. Yeah, just to fucking stay classy. I'm reading off an auto cue now. Someone put a question mark at the end of it. Oh, I said, yeah. <laughs> stay classy? <laughs> Go on, do it like ramen. <laughs> so I said, yeah, now more than ever, yeah, stay safe. And uh, if you can. Stay classy? <laughs> We're out of here.